Thanks for joining us for another episode of, of Life Sciences and Biotech CEO Stories. Today, we actually have two guests. Charles DeCoster IV is the CEO, and Tony Watson is the COO of Zenacor, a company that is focused on revolutionizing laparoscopic surgery with a new scope that they call SaberScope, which is dramatically less expensive, um, more effective in terms of providing the surgeon with uh, available light and that sort of thing, and safer for the patient. Charles is an experienced CEO uh, of many different industries, ranging from alternative energy to defense and uh, travel. Um, but he's a he's an experienced fellow that has been brought in to uh, to um, shepherd the company uh, through its sales process. And uh, he's a graduate of Grand Valley State uh, with a master's in accounting. Tony's background includes 16 years marketing experience with medical device companies, including uh, Medtronic and Covidian, U.S. Surgical, an important name in this, in this space. And uh, prior to joining Zenacor, Tony most recently introduced a product and created a new market, excuse me, for the startup company TTC Med. Uh, Tony earned his BS at St. Cloud State and an MBA in medical device uh, industry from uh, Carlson School of uh, Business at the University of Minnesota. So I understand, fellas, that the idea for SaberScope, like so many, uh, particularly medical device innovations, came from kind of an aha moment um, that involved the light from an iPhone. Um, the founder, Dr. Uh, Langell, um, was called out um, uh, to surgery. And maybe you can share with us uh, what happened there. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that if that's all right, Charles. Um, thanks for having us, Tim. Really appreciate it. Um, so this story is one that um, I'm fairly familiar with. I've known Dr. Langell for a while, long before I joined the company. And I knew this was going on in the background, but didn't know a lot at the time. I had a different job, um, but I do know that he was on call. He opened up his phone and was trying not to wake his wife in the middle of the night. And that bright light in his eyes reminded him of when staff members uh, or another uh, surgeon might accidentally point the camera across the room and saw how bright it was. And that made him realize, wait a minute, there's everything we really need to be able to see well in surgery right here in my pocket. Why, why haven't we made this change? Um, and coincidentally, he was uh, leading the Center for Medical Innovation at the University of Utah, where he was an attending surgeon, which, if you don't know, is kind of like where they, they put new ideas together with engineering students, medical students, residents, doctors. Um, and he was already in charge of that. And so he was able to immediately kind of put that idea into action. Um, and here we are now about seven years later uh, with a Gen 2 product about to hit the market. So he was on to something ahead of its time in many ways, but also just right at that time, so much consumer tech was driving great optics down to smaller portable sizes that led to med device being able to follow, which we're not the only ones. We're just the only ones in laparoscopy, so minimally invasive abdominal and thoracic surgery. We're the only ones that are high definition. Um, and so we're really first to market in this space, but the others are kind of on the same wave because of that growth in consumer tech, which is clearly much higher volume than, than that device. So that's enabled us to do things at a lower cost and more quickly than we would have if we just built it completely from the ground up. 
So Dr. Langell was frustrated with um, kind of the current state of laparoscopic surgery. Mm -hmm. And and it, so he founded the company. What's broken about current laparoscopic surgery methods? Yeah, I think I'll take a couple of those, and I'm sure Tony's going to add in here. But um, a colleague and myself were just at the ASMBS, which is the um, Institute for um, Bariatric Surgeons. And, and that conference in Vegas last week really did prove that frustration is a very prominent word in this space. You know, currently, because of the reusable nature of the devices and also the older technology platform, you know, again, laparoscopic surgery was in, invented in the 80s. And so we're talking about a 35-year-old technology platform that arguably has not changed dramatically since then. And so, you know, what we're able to do with this single use uh, model is eliminate a lot of the frustration. So you open up the package and you plug it in. That's the whole workflow. Um, if you were to see the whole workflow that a reusable scope has to go through from the time it's opened in the ER till the time it gets back to the ER to be used again, um, it's insane. And, and something Tony says often that I really agree with is if we were inventing how you do laparoscopic surgery today, there's no way it would be, you know, the way everybody's doing it for the four and a half million procedures in the U.S. today. And so, you know, by making it single use, not only are we simplifying, we're also providing a lot of visualization benefits. Um, you know, we're reducing waste. Uh, we talked a little bit about it. I'm sure we'll talk more about the economics and how that better serves uh, hospitals. And, and so it, it really is a customer-centered design that is meant to address the major problems that are in laparoscopy that are not isolated. These aren't small incidents. These are things that, you know, the dying from a thousand paper cuts, it happens to every surgeon every day. Um, and, and it's, and it's challenging. And, and so, you know, we believe that that is one of the reasons why we're getting such great relationships with folks who are so excited to use this product. And Tony can talk more, especially about, you know, the, the benefits of the, of the device itself and, you know, how it will help during surgeries. Yeah. Thanks, Charles. And, and quick correction, just for the record, Charles said ER by mistake. We were just talking about some ER applications recently. <laughs> Operating oh, sorry. Oh, is wow. the primary uh, use case and, and setting, just to clarify. Um, but then he, he hinted at something that I think is on a lot of people's minds when they see single use anything outside of med device or within it. They think about the waste profile and you know the impact to the environment. And Charles and I are both outdoors people and just care about our world and our kids' futures and, and all those things. And that's why we actually worked with a partner to devise a recycling program. So this is one is worth just kind of clarifying a little deeper on. Traditional scopes, you're using a bunch of wraps, uh, wipes, PPE, chemicals, water that becomes wastewater into the system with those chemicals uh, to clean this equipment. And 10 to 20% of the time, it doesn't get used on a patient. It has to get cleaned again, either because the packaging was compromised, sat too long, um, or just was the wrong one and didn't get used. No. So in that scenario with our product, it's highly unlikely because with expensive, uh, you know, sterile use, single use devices, they don't just open everything. They only open the things they know they're going to need. So when they know they need ours, they'll open it and it gets used. Well, when that happens, the whole device goes into a recycling bin. And about the same amount of space in a garbage bag it takes to clean one scope can hold about 30 to 40 of ours that get sent off at no charge to the customer. 
uh, not even the shipping. Uh, we've covered it all and eat that cost just to make it that much better of an impact versus wasting all that water and trash um, that a current setup actually uses. So people think reusable, they think better for the environment. It's not always exactly true. Okay, okay. Um, so what? Let's let's get into some specifics about what makes SaberScope the best solution. I'll start with that, but Charles, uh, we always add color to each other's comments, so I'll let him chime in as well, of course. Um, but what customers find to be most beneficial, uh, more and more, as Charles already hinted at the word frustration, that's that encompasses a lot of things. So the the few things is hassles, uh, just dealing with the variability of the equipment, all these parts, all the setup, whether it's maybe a year old light cord and a brand new scope or everything's five years old, gets handed to the surgeon, they don't like the image they see. So that's part of it. We eliminate that. You plug it in, it works. Brand new scope every time, right? The other piece is there's only one other scope on the market uh, that articulates. So otherwise you have to have a bunch of different cut glass, beveled glass rods encased in metal that go to these different camera systems and to get different angles and to see really well in the abdomen. Ours will articulate up to 90 degrees with one device. So you don't have to take your eyes off the patient. We all know how distractions impact your ability to do a task very well or on time. Um, this eliminates some of those distractions and pauses and interruptions. Another one is fog. So traditional scopes, they can get really hot, but actually at the very, very tip of the glass rod, they tend to be cool. So the cold CO2 used to insufflate the belly, coupled with the warm, moist abdomen inside the patient results in condensation or fog on the tip of the scope obscuring the view. So regardless of how new or old or great your equipment is or not great, you can't see for a lot of procedures, you have to pause to try to reduce fogging by warming, wiping the tip, things like that. What, what is it about SaberScope? How were you able to do that? Yeah, our light is actually adjacent to the lens. So it acts as a built-in scope warmer. Traditional scopes, they put in a warm saline bath or in some other device that helps warm it to get ready to be used. And if it stays warm long enough, you don't have fog, but guess what? Eventually that cold CO2 coming into the abdomen cools it, causes condensation. Then you have this ongoing cycle, just like your scuba mask or snorkel mask. Once it starts fogging, it's kind of hard to make it stop and it keeps coming up. And so it's interruption, interruption, delay in surgery, time under anesthesia. So we can potentially address uh, a good portion of that. And the second Ob obscuration of vision is fog. Uh, I mean, in addition to fog is smoke and steam. And that comes from cautery, uh, electrocautery and or vessel sealers and dissectors that create a smoke or steam plume inside the abdomen, just like driving through a snowstorm or fog. We operate on a different wavelength and intensity of light, allows you to see better, you get less bounce back of those kind of floating little particles and molecules uh, that you would normally see. Interesting, okay. Um... So can we get into maybe a little bit more about um, the cost to the system in terms of patient issues and in terms of economics of the current yeah. laparoscopic uh, environment? Yeah, so I'll kick that off. And it's, I think once you look at the fact that Everyone uses the same kind of technology for these laparoscopic procedures today. There are three major players, Stryker, Olympus, and Carl Storrs. 
Um, and, and they're all, you know, this xenon light with fiber optic light cable, they're all reusable. Um, and they all suffer from the same challenges, but the economics are all capital-based models, meaning that you buy the capital and you hope that you can use it as much as possible, just like most businesses, right? You're trying to get as much throughput as you can to leverage that capital greater. And what we have found in almost all of the instances where we've spoken with hospitals of different sizes and types is that they tend to be underutilizing that capital relative to our disposable model, meaning that they're not putting enough procedures through what was a very large capital purchase. And so when you compare our single use model, which is aligned with how often, how much they use, um, perfectly aligned because they literally pay for it per use, um, you know, we are allowed to do a lot of different things that I think then help the hospitals address what they specifically need in their specific center, um, rather than this kind of catch-all, you know, kind of classic model, which is, you know, give us a lot of money for this capital equipment, and then it's your responsibility to use it as much as you can. Um, and so, you know, we're at a place where as, you know, surgeons use this device and they find out how much they really do enjoy it versus the traditional method, it is then easier for them to sell that into their leadership and administration because it is also at better economic alignment. Um, it reduces waste, it reduces hassles, right? It reduces downtime, all of these great things. And so when you wrap all those economic points together, you know, we're really coming out on top in, in just about every case. Yeah, and, and to add to that real quickly is there's other costs that are kind of hidden or not accounted for very well because yeah. just like any big organization, hospitals aren't immune to this, is that they have a lot of different budgets and departments and goals. And uh, so you have a biomed and repair departments. That's one cost. You have a maintenance agreement you have to pay for for these to even get some of the parts. You can't buy them from some other, you know, like Napa auto parts for your car, there's no such thing. You got to buy the maintenance plan. Uh, and then you have repairs, many of which are not covered by the maintenance plan. Uh, and then you have the stuff that just breaks or even walks away. We've talked to many accounts where, you know, the, the underpaid overworked uh, staff and sterile processing starts to walk off with a few things to make a few extra bucks. And um, so they have a number of ways that you're spending on this current equipment. Uh, that isn't always captured in a cohesive way where the hospital even knows what they're paying for procedure. We find uh, from a paper that we had published, it's, a, it's over $1,000 on average per use of the reusable equipment that they think they're getting, you know, this great value from. And I think a lot of people's perception is, oh, it's cost a couple hundred thousand dollars and I use the heck out of it for the last number of years. It's like, well, maybe in the one busy room. What about the other 10 rooms? What about all that walking off equipment? What about the broken all that stuff, it's never captured very well by a typical uh, health system or hospital. What, what does it cost a hospital just to get into the current laparoscopic? About 125 at a minimum, and as high as almost 300,000. If you attach it to the ceiling, that's another 200,000. So up to almost 500,000 day one out the door. And that's, that's per room. Yeah, that's, that's per room. You attach to the ceiling, huh? Yeah, and you got to have backups on backups. You got to have usually three to five setups per room of the camera's light cord scopes. Um, so you put all that together and it's a very expensive proposition day one, which is 
one of the biggest reasons, you know, surgery centers have not taken on laparoscopy as much as we would have probably predicted 10 years ago. It's just that upfront cost is just too much to take the risk. Like, will we do the volume to ever make up for this thing? Mm -hmm. uh, that question mark goes away with us. You pay for what you use. Okay. Okay. Um, I saw somewhere that uh, there were as many as like 400 deaths a year. Um, from Yeah, it's related to the thermal bowel injuries. There's two primary causes of that. Like a million dollars a piece. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the cost, not to mention, obviously, the human life, uh, but there's a big cost. Uh, it's fairly rare when you think about it out of the, in the sense of over four and a half million procedures uh, done minimally invasively. That's a low number, right? When we look at things statistically, it's like, oh, it's really low risk. But why take that risk if you don't have to? And, and one of the big reasons those happen is what's called an arc injury. So when you activate electrocautery, you're essentially using electricity, monopolar cautery converts it to an energy that's going to cauterize tissue and stop bleeding, uh, helps with cutting and coagulating, but that's energy that needs to find a home, right? It doesn't, it's not bipolar, it's monopolar. So it's shooting through the body and dispersing to then go to a grounding pad that's stuck to the patient. Well, if you put a lightning rod, meaning a big glass and metal encased scope, right next to that source of energy, where does the energy want to go? To the lightning rod really close by or through that, you know, mostly water body down to the grounding pad? It's anybody's guess. And most of the time it finds the grounding pad, thank goodness. But the tendency is if it's close enough at enough intensity for enough time, that energy can jump to the glass rod uh, encased in metal. And then any adjacent structures are subject to the amount of energy trying to find then a new home and keep moving. And what that ends up being is a full thickness bowel burn out of the field of view, wow. meaning surgeon and staff doesn't even know they just injured this patient in a significant way. And bowel moves during the procedure, right? Position the patient, peristalsis, which is the wave movement of the bowel, trying to move you know, food and contents through. And if they don't see it, that patient goes home, gets discharged. If it's a same day surgery, a few days later, they get a fever. Um, and they're like, hmm, I don't feel so good. What's going on? If they're the type that doesn't want to call a doctor right away, it might be too late. If they call them right away, they know, oh, you probably have a potential infection leading to sepsis. You're going to die if you don't get in here for a reoperation. And that's where those deaths come from. The doctors know how to manage it when they know what it is, not pointing fingers. It's just one of those things that they won't always know it's there. And a good portion of those 400 or so deaths on average per year is from that type of injury. So very rare, but super serious and very hard to catch it. Wow. Do you know that what's the, um, the growth rate of laparoscopic surgery versus normal traditional surgery? Do you know? The, the device market specific to the space is about 7 to 8% CAGR right now. Uh, and then the single use scope space in particular overall uh, is about 20%. Uh, but we saw a recent report that's showing as high as 39% uh, CAGR through 2028. Wow. But, but the implication from what you're saying to me, outsider, is that um, the number of laparoscopic surgeries may be held back versus traditional because mm -hmm. hospitals are reticent to make the upfront investment. For sure. It, it, in other markets in particular, in the U.S., it's a, it's a cost they've just been willing to bear. They've had to eat it. 
and find a way to do it. And there was no other model. All the companies price things pretty close, but we're still only 20% penetrated 35 years in to this technology being available and becoming the standard of care for, for most of us here in the U.S. and what we expect whenever it's you know anatomically and procedurally feasible. Uh, but the rest of the world, for the most part, does not have it. You know, Europe, Japan, uh, Australia, and uh, major centers throughout the world have it, but the rest don't. So you're talking billions of patients right now still getting treated with big incisions, long recovery times. And the biggest gating item is the cost of this equipment. Training is part of it, but that's not all. Many people train all over the world and go back to their home market, you know, in a, a rural or, or, you know, further out type of a town, work at their hospital. They just, there's no way they're ever going to have that equipment at the price. That but it's that's, that's one of the really exciting things about the Saberscope because it's so small, it could be on a battlefield, but not on a field, but you know, in the, in the field hospital, yeah. it would be, um, you know, in the jungle in Kenya. That's right. That sort of thing. It could, exactly. it could make laparoscopic surgery available in areas where it thus far hasn't been. That's right. More people, more places, you know, at the, the conference, Charles just referenced, uh, Louis Rodriguez, who's our, our leader in the uh, South for sales. Um, he was asking surgeons to meet with them that he knew. And they're like, oh, where's your booth? He's like, oh, we don't need a booth. I have the whole lap tower in my pocket. Or I think he said in my bag, but, <laughs> you know, it was, they're like, what, really? And when they see it, they're, everyone always like, whoa, that's it. They're like, in, in a good way, like, oh, it's that simple. It's, it, uh, it kind of blows them away. And uh, we just had a call with our uh, military contracting uh, partner, and there's definitely opportunities there. There's opportunities in the developing world and, and rural and underserved uh, markets, even here in the U.S., uh, that don't have as good of access to, to such equipment. Even a surgeon who travels and goes to multiple facilities could take it with them. You know, a private practice surgeon going to a rural or a Native American healthcare facility, something like that, where they may not always have the funding and have the equipment, they could bring it with them. You need a monitor. You need a few other things, but there's a lot of it they could actually just walk right in the door with. Right. Which is something that to me is so exciting about the tech that's happening in the life sciences, because it's going to expand access, not just here in the U S where we already have, you know, pretty good access, but across the world to, you know, emerging markets, places where traditional healthcare just doesn't exist. Yep. Yeah, I would I would say, you know, Tim, that we we probably get an email at least once a week um, from somebody outside of the United States that would love to start using, you know, our product. And as we scale, you know, our our, our central focus right now is is proving this in the US. You know, we've already got um kind of our high relationship, high touch sites that we're starting with. Um, but we are very excited for the time when we can eventually, you know, spread things and, and start driving, um, like we're talking about, just utilization and, and more procedures, right, in more places. Um, this is the standard of care, right? And so when you're, when you're talking about doing minimally invasive surgery, anybody who's getting surgery would prefer to have that. Again, like Tony's saying, if it's feasible. Um, and so, you know, we would love to be a part of making that happen globally. Right. Yeah. So one thing I'd like to go back to is that um, 
I noted in just researching for, for the uh, podcast that Dr. Langell, after he had his aha moment, he went to other surgeons and said, what's been your experience? What do you think we need to do? Um, he worked backwards. Once he found the problem, he worked backwards to develop a comprehensive solution. And now seven years later, here we are. So let's talk about those seven years. Tell us about the challenges um, that you've experienced during that period in terms of design and then manufacture. And then we can talk more about uh, building the sales team and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a couple quick first comments um, just because of my history. Uh, and then Charles has more of the manufacturing um, side of things more currently. But I'd say some of the bigger challenges early on were, um, you know, raising money. It's always a challenge uh, with starting out um, even before my time. But they they got seed money, got it going, got the project, found the right, you know, intelligent person. We have a, a MIT PhD who's worked on some of the world's first digital cameras, who's helped helped us with this tech all along the way and was a co-founder. Um, and so we got to a, a kind of an MVP 10 millimeter scope. So in minimally invasive surgery, smaller is better. Uh, and so we started with 10 millimeters, which is great, but five has become more and more of the standards. People want the ability to use a five millimeter port, smaller incision. You don't have to suture that close. So it's actually a little bit easier for the surgeon and staff, faster procedure, patient gets less of a scar, all those reasons. Um, and so everybody prefers smaller. And uh, so as we got out, got voice of the customer, did some procedures um, uh, throughout the world and in the US, uh, we got the resounding feedback that five millimeter was desired. Well, when you shrink the outer diameter by uh, 50%, the inner diameter shrinks by even more than 50%. So designing that is a tremendous challenge to keep it HD, give it all the features we want, make it robust enough, but not too expensive. And so there's a lot of those things that go into it, and that's leading us to where we are now, which does present some challenges uh, in scalability, uh, but this product is being made currently. And so I, I hand it off to Charles there to just talk a little bit more about kind of where we're at and where we're headed uh, to continue to address those kinds of challenges. Okay. Yeah, so with a single-use device, right, it's pretty easy to see how quickly, you know, you need to be able to ramp your manufacturing. Um, and to Tony's point and all of this innovation, it's a, it's a fairly complex device. Um, and so being able to make that at scale has been something, you know, that we've spent a lot of, a lot, a lot of time and effort and energy in, you know, I think the other thing that's important is, you know, we need to make sure that as we're delivering this new technology, this new device, you know, that we're not asking surgeons to give things up. You know, and so when you think about the quality of the image and making sure that, right, the scope, the new scope that we put in everybody's hands, you know, that it functions as intended. And then to scale that up, you can imagine, right, all of those things coming together is, is very challenging. And so, you know, what what we've taken really is just a, you know, from a design perspective, customer centric approach. Um, and then from a manufacturing perspective, a manufacturing approach. And, you know, we, we work with a really good contract manufacturer um, who has a lot of experience in this field, uh, works with, you know, all the big names in medical device. And so, you know, understands the needs and, you know, just a, a 
you know, smart and diverse group of people um, to help us solve problems. I, I would say, you know, for, for Tony and I, that that's a prerequisite, you know, with anybody who we interview for any position in the organization, um, having that problem solving mindset, you know, and, and being willing to venture out of your comfort zone because you know that you know how to get stuff done. Um, and so we just try to continuously encourage that in our culture, you know, is, is even though these are big, tough problems, you know, we're smart people and we all get hired for a reason. So um, it's, it's our job to make it happen. Yeah. So where, where are you manufacturing here in the U.S. or in Asia? What? So our manufacturing is actually in Central America and Costa Rica. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, you know, you, you get to, I think, avert a little bit of the challenges that some U.S. companies are experiencing with China, um, you know, and, and I know a ton, a ton of stuff gets made there and, and, you know, it's, it, it's for good reason. Um, but for us, you know, we, we can't have disruptions, you know, in our product flow, um, you know, for any reason, right. Patients are at stake here. And so, you know, we had to have a really good straightforward supply chain that made sense. Um, and Costa Rica, I, I don't know if you've ever been, but it's just a great place, you know, to, to have a business full of just great, really smart people. So uh, really happy with, with what we're doing there. And really nice sailfish. Yeah. 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 And waves. Yeah. For, if you're yeah. a surfer. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And, and Tim, you had asked about sales as well uh, from a, you know, kind of hiring and scaling perspective, I believe. Is that right? You wanted right. to know. Yeah. That. So our challenge there is back to just really the scaling of the manufacturing. And I wouldn't say it's a big challenge. It's just a hurdle we have to continue to, to draw, run towards and jump over and through is to know how many can we make, how fast. Right now, I can sell as many as we can possibly make, uh, to be honest. So uh, how many can you make? Um, no day. Oh, you're muted, Charles. Um, <laughs> no, really, how many, how many do you think you can so make? Yeah, so so the the general forecast, right, or expectation is, you know, in in the first year here, we're kind of in that, you know, two thousand or so for the year. Um, year two, we're looking at somewhere in the range of, you know, eight thousand plus, and then year three, twenty thousand plus. Um, you know, even up to potentially forty thousand. You know, it, some of it's going to depend on, you know, our next generation devices clearly going to be more easily manufacturable because you learn a lot of things right on your first rodeo as you launch. And, um, and that's one of the things that I'm really thankful for, you know, the foundations of this platform and, you know, the digital and dynamic nature of it, just make it, you know, so much easier to iterate, um, to get to the next one, to launch a new product into a market that's, you know, that's what we need. And, and so, you know, the scaling there, right, going from 2000 in a year to 20,000 in a year over the course of just three years, I mean, you know, we're going to be doing that with a, a lot of strong partners, people we've identified. And, and ultimately, you know, it, it's, we believe that we will still likely be um, undersupplied at that point, because uh, basically every surgeon we've ever put this in their hands wants to try it. And, and, we generally speaking have had very um, awesome relationships and conversations with the administrative people who are, you know, making sure that it makes economic and every other sense. And so, you know, we, we feel very good about not only our ability to scale, but also our ability, you know, to satisfy what we believe is a very real customer need. That's great. Wow. I mean, that's, that's really big growth. Yeah. yeah. 
but you mentioned early on that there were others um, who either currently manufactured a disposable product or were in the process of this is where the industry's going. So there are, my guess is others who are, I don't want to say nipping at your heels, but potential yeah. future competitors. Can yeah. you tell us about those and why yeah. you think you've, um, you know, you've bettered their, um, sure. their products? Sure. Yeah, so a, a couple just quick pieces. Um, you know, the first one is, is that we would bifurcate this market into those who have laparoscopy and a laparoscope. Those are all traditional. There is not a single, single use um, laparoscope in the market with the exception of our device. And then there are the people who make a lot, a lot of single use scopes, but are not in laparoscopic surgery. And those scopes are scopes from people like AMBU, Boston Scientific. You know, they make duodenoscopes and bronchoscopes and ureteroscopes and um, there's there's a lot of scopes and endoscopy that is separate from the laparoscopic market that we're going after. And both AMBU and Boston Scientific, who are experts in single-use scope, neither of them play in our um, operating room world at all um, in, in terms of laparoscopy. They really don't have any business lines associated with that. And so, you know, when you when you look at people who are trying to enter this type of a field in a market... You know, um, not only do we have strong IP that can help protect us from people coming straight behind us in the same way that we are. Um, if you think about it, the Boston's and the Ambu's likely aren't headed down this road just because they'd have to spin up a whole new sales force. Right. And if you look at the people who are in this world, if you look at the strikers, the Olympuses, the, the Carl stores, I mean, I, I led strategy and investor relations for Stryker. Um, I know how those businesses work. And just at the end of the day, Stryker is very good at a certain kind of innovation, which is not these types of very disruptive innovations that innovate their sales model and their economics. You know, that's something they usually wait until somebody has gone out into the market and proved it, you know, and then they go out and try to acquire it. Um, the kind of last group of people who always have the potential to come up is other disruptors like Tony and I, right, who know how to do this thing and are out here in the space. Um, and again, I think I would just throw that back to RIP, um, where we've got a really strong portfolio, where we believe it will be very challenging for someone to follow us. And if they do, it will then again be unlikely for them to be able to offer the same value at the same economics. Interesting. And, and my sense of it is, both from your deck, okay, um, yeah. as well as from the comment that Charles just made, is that at some point, um, you might expect someone like a striker to come along and say, um, bigger might be better. Yeah, I, I think it's fair that that, that is the traditional route right, of these things. Um, but Tony and I, like we always talk about with the board, you know, you build for the long term, um, regardless of what your strategy is. Um, and so, you know, where we're at as an organization is we know that there's going to be significant interest um, in our device once it's proven. Um, and so we do think about 
how do you prove something like this? That's you know, right. how do you have the right data points and, and how do you have the right relationships and how can you show that to somebody in a provable way? Um, you know, and so we think about that with all the things that we do. Um, and, and, you know, if, if you're going from our, you know, relatively small sales force against the, you know, strikers of the world and their 500 people, you know, laparoscopic sales force, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it, it, it's makes sense for them to scale by purchasing new technology rather than necessarily Tony and I building another, you know, 400, 300 person sales force. So, um, you know, those are decisions that are made a little bit down the road. You know, once once you've you've been in the market, you see what kind of interest there is and candidly, just how strongly of a foundation of a company Tony and I are able to build. Um, you know, if if we don't build this for the long term, you know, then we would really be looking to sell. Um, and so, you know, it's it's on us to make sure that these things happen. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm so thankful to have Tony um, on board, because apart from just having been a tremendous sales leader um, for so long, just leadership and operations and all of these things that are important, you know, he's just so good at it and it makes us all better. Right. So let's talk about some of those relationships for a minute, because I, I know that uh, you have a relationship with the university hospitals. Um, you've done kind of extensive work in terms of uh, relative value um, with them. And, and that has um, kind of demonstrated some of the performance for you. So can you tell us a little bit about that relationship and how it's growing and how it came to be, all that sort of thing? Well, to clarify, we're working with multiple you know, academic institutions. UH Cleveland, if that's what you're referencing, is is one of them. Uh, we My worked father was born there. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've done... Um, a number of uh, labs and animal labs and dry demos and things like that as a form of validation. So the relationships uh, vary from institution to institution. Some just see it as this is innovative. We want to learn more about it and help you and give you some feedback. Some are like, Hey, you got to pay us to use our lab, but we'll help get some people in there. Everybody does it a little bit differently, but the universal result for many of these has been, Every surgeon who uses it signs a form and says they want to try it. Um, they've given us feedback. We're talking eights or nines out of tens of their likelihood to adopt uh, if it were available in their institution. Uh, eights, nines, and tens uh, and their ability to do surgery safely after just a few minutes in an animal lab. They feel like they could do surgery safely with it. So we've kind of shortened that adoption curve uh, and received that feedback. So we have, we've done labs at uh, Cleveland Clinic as well. Uh, another one in Ohio. Uh, Wake Forest, we've done a few. Um, Boston. So we, uh, Boston at Tufts. And so we've been in a bunch of places, different specialties. Uh, we're not, you know, we have a few that we believe are our focus, but the truth will be in the purchasing patterns and usage patterns. Who's really adopting this? But uh, we know who everyone likes it. Every specialty that does laparoscopy out of these events has shown us they have at least one use case for it that is somewhat regular. Um, and many of which we believe will expand upon that once they have it in their hands. Um, and those are all important names. <laughs> yeah. Those are, those are important hospitals. Um, yeah. So are you actually out there day to day now trying to sell the saver scope or? In, in a sense, uh, carefully, because we want to stay focused on those. Those are obviously important I'm places. Just, right. 
You don't want to outpace our supply uh, for one. And two, engagement by the customer is critical. So they're a little bit self-selecting. If if we have to chase them and chase them and chase them, that's not our best first customer, right? We want people who see the promise of this for the long term. And we're not trying to be everywhere at once because one, if we are to sell the business, it's not as attractive to be in 10 accounts one day a week or one account for 10 cases a day. That's showing the model is much more like, boom, we can make this really, really big and scalable. That's what we're trying to prove as well as that's just a better business foundation. We don't have to hire as many people, travel as much. So whether that's a long-term business um, structure or acquisition uh, structure, either way, it's smarter to stay focused and and it drives execution if we can stay focused. So that's really what we're doing right now is is those, some of those names I mentioned and a few others. Um, And so we're actively working with those. So an example is our sales leaders are actually going into these accounts now, training staff, observing procedures, making notes of how everything connects, uh, meeting with the biomed department, make sure our equipment plays nicely, which it does so far everywhere we go but also just seeing all the extra steps and waste and things that are going okay and the delays so that when we go into our live cases really soon here, it's going to be very obvious. Like, Hey, remember all those things we saw before? Now you don't have to deal with that. It'll just continue to reinforce why they're interested in this device. So we're really setting the stage right now as we lead up to launch and focused on those key accounts only. Great. Great. And, and I think you currently have four salespeople. Uh, well, three uh, plus me. <laughs> okay. Plus plus a marketer uh, who will be in the field a bit as well. Okay, great. You've got a great team in addition to yourselves. I noticed that uh, um, Dinesh Patel, who's pretty much of a legend, um, is on mm-hmm. the And it, can you maybe tell us a little bit about how that larger team came together and um, maybe a little something about how you all work together, what the relationships are. Uh, I'll jump in on a little bit. The board, you know, a lot of that was formed before either of us really. Um, So what I do know is a lot of it's just through the, some of the Utah entrepreneurial and med device and biotech network that exists uh, is where a lot of it came from is people just knowing, Hey, this is probably the right kind of person to have involved. And as they were forming it, uh, as these things kind of tend to be, uh, but some of the additions since to our board have been from, you know, uh, significant investment, um, gaining a board seat as well as, uh, Mark Foster's the CEO of Trice medical, which is a, uh, um, extremity single use scope. So for hand and foot procedures, he's the CEO of that company. So he knows the space very well, but very far away from being competitive. Um, and so our uh, previous CEO, who's a friend of Charles and, I, and mine, uh, helped to find him and bring him in through a, a mutual connection. And, and he's been a great addition to our board. So um, that's kind of how that came together. And then a lot of our team um, is luckily because we've been in the industry so long, we both stayed in touch and, and have a lot of people we know and trust that we've seen their work. We've seen what they do when no one's looking and we know that they can get things done and we can count on them. And we've just, the culture is amazing. The, the people we get to work with, it's such an honor, honestly, every day and why now I work even harder because I don't want to ever let them down. I have personal friends who've invested. Now I have people who I highly respect in the industry that I won't let down. Uh, and we always had the patient first ahead of all that. And so now it's like every day I'm motivated and excited to do my work because there's too many people that rely on me, but in a good way, I see that as like, my responsibility go out and execute now and do do your work today 
Good. Yeah, to having worked in, in the places Tony and I have, I mean, there's just there there's just a lot of good people out there, you know, and and just like Tony said, I mean, you know, keeping relationships is is really an important part of this business. I mean, med device is small. You know, and and so getting out there and making sure you're putting the right foot forward on a regular basis, I think, is kind of good advice for anyone entering this field. Um, you know, because you know you're going to end up running into the people you run into again. Um, and and you know, I think that's another thing, like Tony had mentioned, with you know, patient-centered focus. I mean, you know, it's it's just such a rewarding place to be. And so, you know, we're very um, fortunate company that we get to build our culture now from the ground up. I mean you know, with any corporate entity, you know, which, you know, Tony and I were, were very close to the top of both, um, you know, it, you see a lot of the skeletons in the closet too, and a lot of the dysfunction that just, it has to exist in corporate America because it's complex, you know, amalgamation of a bunch of different humans with diverse perspectives. Um, you know, and, and in our case, we, we fortunately get to, you know, kind of build our culture with the people, that we invite to come in. And, you know, I, I think Tony and I have said this a lot of times. I mean, we, we wouldn't hire anybody that we wouldn't trust to get their work done when we weren't there. So. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, who we choose, but it's also who chooses us, you know, seeing yeah. proactivity and the reach outs and people. I mean, I, I've had three just today of people who've been in touch with me for months who are on constantly like, you ready to hire me yet? Can you officially interview me yet? Um, and seeing that desire, knowing that they're getting into a, you know, I won't say messy because we're organized, we do our jobs, but it's messy, right? Early on, storming, forming, norming, just like when new groups come together, it's the same with a new business. You, you kind of get to that next tier and they're like, oh, now we have big kid problems next tier. Now we have adult problems, whatever you want to call it. And it's just problems to be solved and you got to be comfortable with that. And we love that. We thrive on that. And that's, that's business. That's that's running a company, starting it from small and raising money and, and to take off from there. Um, but we got to have people who are ready for that and, and showing that they're seeking that and not just want a cool job because they say, hey, I work at a startup. That's that's not good enough. You, you got to show me where you belong here. You actually have to work. At the yeah, you actually have to work. There's no hiding. We don't have a single conference call where you can just sit and listen. Yeah, like, right. if you're on that call. It's for a reason and you better be a part of it. Right. Uh, the big companies, there's so many of those where you just have to, you got to be on, they take attendance, but you don't want to pay attention because you got 10 other things to do and you're not actually able to add value. We want people to be able to feel like they can add value, um, but we also obviously um, need to add value to them, develop them, give them opportunities to learn, stretch, do new things. Um, and that's a big part of how we kind of pick who gets to work here, but they pick us too. So we talked about the the 400 people that, get burned every year. That's a million dollars a case. Um, we've talked about site infections and, and the cost there, that sort of thing. So I would think that the insurers would be knocking down your door. They, they would, except uh, the process kind of works through Medicare typically, or CMS, I should clarify. Um, and we've explored that a bit. The, the burden of proof and clinical data is so high that by the time we get to where we have enough that they're going to care, because it's not just about cost, right? It's got to be outcomes and, and really focused. And because these are rare enough events, we got to have enough usage to show that we solve for enough of that to matter. 
that's going to take years to be honest. Unfortunately, it's just the way they look at it. Um, so by the time we get to that point, even if we're gathering that data all the while, chances of us being on the market as Xenocore and not gobbled up are pretty slim, <laughs> um, to, to be honest, especially if we're on that path. If we are proving it, it's looking good and we're getting thousands and thousands of these used uh, and paid for, um, it's going to be hard to uh, ignore us in the market, especially as a first mover that's way ahead of anybody else right now. And how will you collect all that data? Right now, we have some surveys planned, more initial like marketing related uh, pieces, uh, but we're talking to some of those academics. That's the other advantage to these institutions we're working with is they have interest in doing research and we're vetting out how could we do these kinds of things? What, what things would drive the most value for the organization? Um, and, and that's where we really need to land. And that may not be a part of anything we do, but it's something we're, we're strongly considering. Um, but I think some of the things that are more immediate, easier, shorter term will probably come up first as far as studies and white papers and bench studies, things like that, that will just make it that much easier for people to say, this is safe, this is great, let's adopt it, um, and let's reimburse for it, maybe someday, those kinds of things. That can still come from a lot of those other pieces we're working on. But patient data, that's a whole complex thing that we're probably not quite outfitted for yet. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you're really at the end of the beginning mm -hmm. journey. Right. <laughs> and now is, uh, I always like to quote uh, President Kennedy used to say, sincerity is always subject to proof. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. Yep. But but um, I'm excited uh, for Zenecor. And more importantly, I'm excited for patients, not just here in the U.S., but in uh, lesser developed areas, for instance, Costa Rica, <laughs> um, where they'll now be able to access laparoscopic, you know, minimally invasive surgery um, in a more plentiful way. So uh, it's quite a journey you're on and, and I'm excited for you and, and for, for the rest of the world. Thank you very much for your time today, Charles and Tony. I've enjoyed getting to know more about you and, and more about uh, Cinecore and Saberscope. And uh, good luck. I hope that we can follow up uh, sometime in the future to hear about uh, your success. Thanks, Tim. Tim. Thanks for tuning in to the Life Sciences and Biotech podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this website and podcast are purely informational and not considered investment recommendations. Tim Doherty's participation in Biotech Insights is separate and apart from his role as an investment advisor representative. Nothing contained herein can be construed as a recommendation or endorsement of any of the companies discussed. Tim Doherty also has no financial affiliation with any of the companies mentioned in this communication. Tim Doherty makes no representation that the information contained in this material is accurate and is under no obligation to update this information as changes occur.